Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast exploring the great histories and mysteries of this land. I'm Annie, your resident poltergeist. Ooh. And I'm Jenny, a terrified tourist with an iron stomach, frantically live streaming the ground as I run away from Annie's terrifying wails. <laughs> For the most spooky time of year, Halloween or as it's known in Old Gaelic, Samhain, is upon us. The harvest is over, the equinox has passed, and the nights are closing in. Folk are retreating into their homes and around their hearths, avoiding the darkness at all costs. Because in the dim corners where shadows dance, and the... Annie, do you hear that? Wait, what is that? Why... I think it's none other than the jangling of the beaded curtain that separates our world from the other. (laughs) (laughs) The world of the supernatural. The world of spirits and ghosts, fairies and foe, and most terrifyingly of all... My heating bill? Uh... I mean, if you've just been dealing with them by shoving them through the veil instead of opening them, then yes, your heating bill too. I was really hoping that some fairies would kindly deal with my heating bills. Well, Annie, at this time of year, the veil is at its thinnest, and if you're not careful, you're about to get a pile of bills from beyond the grave. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have such an exciting and scary episode for you today, folks. Because as this alleged jangly curtain opens between our world and the world of the supernatural, billowing in the cool autumnal winds, we are going to be visiting one of the most haunted spots in all of Scotland. We're going to Greyfriars Kirkyard. (gasps) If there's one place you'll be haunted for sure, it's Greyfriars Kirkyard. And I can say that with certainty because I myself was 100% haunted there back in 2017. But we'll get to that later. First, to fully understand why this spot is so horrifically haunted, we must venture back in time to the dark streets and winding alleyways of 15th century Edinburgh. In the mid-1400s, a handful of Greyfriars boarded a boat in the Netherlands and bravely sailed for Scottish shores. They found themselves in Edinburgh and by 1458 they had set up a friary on the southwest edge of town. What does Greyfriar actually mean? Why are they grey? A Greyfriar was a follower of the Franciscan branch of Catholicism. They are an intriguing collective They're an order named after St. Francis of Assisi. Fun fact, St. Francis was credited with the first ever nativity scene in 1223. So next year, 2023, will be the 800th anniversary of nativity scenes. If you're that kind of person (laughs) who gets excited about seeing folks dressed up as a devoted donkey... (laughs) But Greyfriars wore grey habits or gowns, so that's why they're known as the Greyfriars. Ah, well, that makes sense. 
So these Grey Friars set up a friary on what was, at the time, the outskirts of Edinburgh, but is now very central and part of the old town area of Edinburgh. Yes, this location really makes sense. When I think of kind of 15th century history, a lot gets muddled up in my mind. Um, So I'll just check in with you now. Do you know the difference between a friar and a monk? Um, Monks have better haircuts. Actually, they both have pretty awesome haircuts, Jenny. Nice. I'm now going to go down a wormhole googling various orders of the church's monks' haircuts. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm going to rank them. Oh my gosh, this is going to be great. Spin-off podcast. Rate my bowl cut. (laughs) (laughs) Monks tend to live lives in quiet isolation, whereas friars live amongst the people. All right. You have a lot of similarities between friars and monks, men devoting their lives to the service of God. Lots of time spent on theology and philosophy, but with your friars, you've got them getting their hands a wee bit more dirty. So this friary itself is going to be supporting this wee group of friars as they go about preaching, begging, and then helping the poor and sick. Over the following century, we're going to see our little friary in Edinburgh of dirty-handed friars grow to about 50 residents, give or take a few. But, unfortunately, our wee friary is about to have a momentous date for the diary. Because sneaking up on it is... A Reformation! (gasps) Oh! Gosh, you can't just frighten me with a reformation like that, Annie. The real terrifying thing this Halloween is a reformation from several centuries ago. Who saw that coming? <laughs> Plot twist. Annie, you got to warn me about decades of simmering tension before you drop a reformation on me like that. <laughs> <laughs> My poor heart can't take it. <laughs> Our reformations are happening in the 16th century across Europe with varying results. But essentially, it's the split of the Western Church into Protestantism and Catholicism. Now, in this time, our wee Grey Friars Church was abandoned, and most of the friars would return in exile to the Netherlands. The friary buildings were taken apart and used for building materials in other structures. But the surrounding friary grounds were not actually built upon, Instead, our favourite, Mary Queen of Scots, grants this ground to be used as a graveyard. Now she has to do this because the city's other graveyard at St Giles Cathedral was positively packed to bursting point. Oh, what a wonderfully medieval thought. But in time, Greyfriars becomes more than just a regular old tombstone and mausoleum graveyard because what do you know... It's the plague! Oh, no, not another one. I don't think I can deal with another plague, Jenny. Oh, you're gonna have to. (laughs) (laughs) While there were many outbreaks of the bubonic plague or Black Death in Edinburgh throughout the centuries, none was as horrific as the 1645 epidemic. With an estimated 35,000 inhabitants, the city was grossly overpopulated. You see, Edinburgh had far outgrown its defensive walls, yet 
it was a dangerous time to be alive. And so, people sacrificed the open space outside the city walls for the safety within. What this meant was that Edinburgh was packed incredibly tightly within the walls. And if you can't build outwards, you're left with two options. Dig down or build up. And the people did both. To this day, the city is riddled with underground vaults and buried streets. But in general, building up is easier than digging down. And so the buildings grew taller and taller, squeezing as many people on top of each other as they possibly could. Some buildings grew as tall as 10 storeys, a very impressive architectural feat for the time. I'm not sure about this fact, Jenny. 25 storeys tall, Annie. Some of these buildings were reaching like 75 storeys. They had elevators. (laughs) (laughs) So myself and Jenny, we went on a couple of tours of Edinburgh recently and our tour guides told us that buildings got to the grand height of 14 floors. 150 floors. (laughs) I'm sure that this is a bit of an exaggeration. Ah, it's tour guide creative license. Slash podcasting creative license. (laughs) (laughs) Archival accounts of visiting Edinburgh suggest the tallest buildings were about seven or eight storeys in some places, which is incredibly tall for the time period. The safest I feel saying is that they were 37 storeys high, and I'm sticking with it. (laughs) But back then, the people were jammed into these rickety mini skyscrapers. People needed homes to live in to protect them from the elements and dangers of the streets. However, within these overcrowded walls, they discovered another threat. The living conditions made them incredibly vulnerable to disease. And this wouldn't have just been because of their cramped quarters. There wasn't access to good sanitation. There was no plumbing or sewers, meaning that any and all waste was thrown out of the window onto the streets below with a call of Gardilou. (laughs) But Gardilou is actually a shake-up of the French Gardez de Lieu, meaning watch the water. I think that was also a shake-up of the French, Jenny. (laughs) Again, podcasting creative license on entire (laughs) languages. (laughs) But it's in these conditions that the plague arrived in Edinburgh. It's believed to have come in through the city's main port at least. Sea was a very common mode of transport for the plague. Sailors and merchants would pick it up in one port, and by the time they'd arrived at their next port, the ship would have been ravaged by it. It was easily carried onto land as rats were common on ships, fleas were common on rats, and the plague was common in fleas. As soon as it landed in Edinburgh, it began spreading fast, aided by the overcrowding and unsanitary conditions. Leith was particularly badly hit. It's estimated that half of the inhabitants of this area succumbed to the grim disease. It would start with a fever and flu-like symptoms, but quickly develop into extreme pain and gangrene. Lymph nodes would swell into the famously grim bubos that give the name bubonic plague. For the majority who caught it, death typically came after just 10 days of infection. The rich fled the city as soon as they could, and the government moved to Perth. 
but those who didn't have the means had to stay and suffer. By July, the epidemic was at its height and bodies littered the streets. Anyone showing symptoms was either quarantined in their house with their entire family or banished to isolation in specifically built huts outside the city walls. That's really a lose-lose situation either way. Especially if you're one of the family members who's not showing symptoms, but you have to be quarantined in there, which basically seals your fate, even though you're not necessarily ill at that point. By November, the worst of the plague was over, but the city was in shambles. Some estimate that up to half of the entire population died. However, these numbers are probably too high. I think it's probably closer to 20 or 30% of the city, so that's somewhere between 7,000 and 10,000 people. That's a lot of people. But Jenny's right in what she's saying, that this is a large percentage of the population, whether it's 20% or significantly higher than that. And that's meaning that absolutely every family has been touched by the plague. Yeah, and as you say, it's a large number of people no matter what, which means that there was a large number of bodies. And remember, Edinburgh was already incredibly tight on space. And so it was impossible for all of these bodies to have individual graves. And so, as was common in plague-struck communities, plague pits were dug. And one of these pits was in Greyfriars Kirkyard. Hundreds, possibly thousands of bodies were unceremoniously flung into this pit. Hang on a wee minute there, Jenny. That's really loaded language. I think it's quite pragmatic for people not to have ceremonies in the midst of an epidemic, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. But at the same time, people would usually have had ceremonies and they were not being able to have that. So if nothing else, the bodies are just being put in that pit and covered up. So I guess that when we're saying unceremoniously, we're thinking about the trauma that that would have impacting the families who were having to bury their loved ones in a plague pit. Like, that must be a dreadful choice to have to make. But I guess they didn't have any other choices at all. No, exactly. And I think at the time it's also important to note that having a proper grave ceremony and burial was part of allowing the soul to move into the afterlife, a lot of people would believe. So if you're having this plague pit where there are many bodies in there that aren't in the time believed to have their souls moved on I'm just saying it's leaving you wide opening for haunting a hundred years down the line I think that's a little bit of a misinterpretation of the religion because it's still it's consecrated ground and I think that the bodies would be being blessed still but just en masse instead of as an individual graves. I don't know, Annie, that still to me sounds like it's leaving us open to a lot of hauntings. (laughs) (laughs) Because at the end of the day, countless poor souls whose lives had ended in unimaginable suffering and fear are now all buried together. It's said that there were so many bodies in the plague pit that the kirkyard now appears to be on a hill. So numerous are the skeletons that it's not uncommon in wet and muddy conditions for bones to work their way up to the surface and crop out into the Edinburgh air once more. This is not a nice thought. 
But the horrible thing is the mass death from the plagues, not the skeletons, because I think we expect the ground of a graveyard to be full of bones. From looking at the graveyard's social media pages, the main threat seems to be from Harry Potter tourism making some grave sites a little more muddy in places. Another consequence of Harry Potter tourism is that one of the gravestones that said to have inspired the name of a character has been stolen from the graveyard. I did not know that. That's true. Well, grave robbery certainly leaves us open to more curses, I think, and awakening more spirits. Oh, absolutely. And if you do find any bones in the graveyard, I would be very wary of taking any of them home. Hang on a minute there, Jenny. No one sees bones in a graveyard and thinks, oh, I should take these home with me. Uh, you're the person that taught me about your hobby of going around graveyards and looking in, in little rabbit holes so you can find bones. <laughs> well, I look in rabbit holes to see if there's any bones that have been disturbed so I can report it to the local authority. Not so I can take them home and put them on my mantelpiece, Jenny. The only bones on my mantelpiece are bones that I found on the beach and that can be legitimately classified as a sea mammal. Okay, so I've been doing it wrong all this time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even funny, Jenny. <laughs> I'm just trying to get cursed, okay? Apart from the one stolen gravestone, the majority of tourists are just admiring the kirkyard. No one is digging up any bodies anymore. Well, I don't know, Annie. It is said that with so many lives suddenly and horribly ended and their bodies improperly buried, that some spirits were unable to move on to the afterlife. Their untethered souls remain in the graveyard, forever walking upon the ground where so much suffering is buried. If we rewind a little bit, Annie, before the grimness of the plague, you said that the original friary was taken apart and used in other buildings. But if I recall, there is a kirk in the graveyard today, isn't there? Aye, there is. This kirk was built by the council in the early 17th century, just as Edinburgh's population was growing rapidly. And the nearby St Giles Cathedral could no longer handle the amount of folks looking for its services both in their lives and their afterlives, or buried lives. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, so this would have been built as a Protestant place of worship rather than a Catholic one, because the shifts caused by the Reformation means that the Presbyterian Kirks are now all the fashion. Yes, but religion was still causing a lot of tension throughout the British Isles. Protestantism was the branch of Christianity favoured by the majority of those in power, and they would write laws to uphold their religious beliefs and to suppress the beliefs of others. However, we are seeing a divide between the people in power in Scotland and the people in power in England. Scotland and England not agreeing on things. This is highly unusual. Very suspect. Now, though both countries are being controlled by Protestant doctrine, the Scottish Church adopted a Presbyterian structure rather than the English Episcopalian framework, 
resulting in many different fundamental beliefs between their religious identities. Mm. And even though the union of the English and Scottish crowns took place back in 1603, there were still many differences between the countries 30 years later. And so King Charles I decided that unity is needed, and this unity shall come in the form of a single religious belief system. This is called religious uniformity. It's when a ruling power tries to impose a singular set of beliefs on a nation, at the exclusion of other religions and beliefs. And this is no easy task. In 1637, when King Charles I tried to implement his unifying Book of Common Prayer in Scotland, a woman named Jenny Geddes threw a stool at the Dean of Edinburgh's head as he read from it. Yes, Jenny Geddes threw her wee portable chair at him. This was a good example of women taking a leading role in fighting for their religious freedoms. It was recorded that William Annan of St Giles encountered many enraged women with fists and staves and peats, but no stones, and that they beat him sore. I... <laughs> I hate that I love this. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I respect the restraint these women had in choosing a nice, soft, springy, dried wad of peat rather than stones and beating this man. <laughs> Although peat could be quite dense, like a whack from a a bit of peat could really, I don't know, if nothing else, it'll leave a mark. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, with the clatter of chair legs, simmering tension burst into wild rioting. The Scottish folk were not going to take these unwanted changes to their religious beliefs sitting down. Mainly because they'd thrown their chairs and so they had no option, but, you know... (laughs) I know that we're laughing here, but I can't overstate how tense this situation would have been. Pete's were flying. The Bishop of Brechen even chose to give his readings from the pulpit with loaded pistols pointed at the congregation. No. Can you imagine it? I actually can't. That's astounding. So it's no secret that the changes brought in by King Charles I were unpopular. And so I sense a wee bit of rebellious spirit brewing. Enter the Covenanters. The Covenanters were in stark opposition to King Charles's desired changes to the Scottish Kirk. The core issue was that they believed that God was the ultimate head of the church and thus the top of the church would have power over the king. This was against Charles's belief that the king should have power over those at the top of the church. Which I guess you would think, if you were the king, I should be the almighty one. And so, refusing to take tyranny over their church, the Covenanters organised themselves in resistance. A year after that throne chair... In 1638, the National Covenant was drafted. This document committed all those who signed it to stand in defence of their nation's religion and to oppose any reforms imposed on the Church of Scotland. And where do you think the National Covenant was signed, Jenny? Oh, I've got no idea, Annie. 
Why, in none other than Greyfriars Kirkyard itself. That's right, people, a call back to our favourite kirkyard. <laughs> I knew this history lesson was for something. <laughs> After hundreds gathered to sign the National Covenant in Greyfriars Kirkyard, the issue was far from over. This was just the beginning of the nationwide resistance. We see the Covenanters growing into a powerful movement and taking control of Scotland. Now this period, it's such a chaotic time of great instability. We've got the War of Three Kingdoms bubbling away and also the plague that we've just mentioned. So after a few dreadful decades, including the king renouncing his promises to the Covenanters, they again find themselves a persecuted minority. These incredibly tumultuous decades of the Covenanters fighting for their religious beliefs culminated in the unfortunately named, yet accurately named, Killing Time. That doesn't sound good. It's not good, especially if you're a Covenanter, that's for sure. During this period, the Covenanters were being increasingly persecuted under the rule of King Charles I's son, King Charles II. And then, in the spring of 1679, a group of Covenanters murdered James Sharp, who was the Archbishop of St Andrews. They saw him acting as an agent of the king to undermine the Presbyterian Scottish Kirk. And in their rage, they decided that assassination was the way forward for them, which may not have been the best choice. Yeah, assassinating an archbishop, that is a bold move, to say the least. It actually sounds like a game of chess, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like, and then he plays the assassination of the archbishop, and what's that? He's flipped the board and left the room. You've never played chess, <laughs> have you, Jenny? Okay, so we've got a murdered archbishop. It's maybe worth a little note that though these words have different meanings nowadays, in 17th century Scotland, Episcopalian implies governance by bishops and Presbyterian implies governance by elders. So our covenanters are the Presbyterians. And an archbishop in support of King Charles II is a really strong symbol of what they are fighting against. But the murder of Archbishop James Sharp threw the country into civil turmoil once more and culminated two months later in the Battle of Bothwell Bridge. So here, an army of 6,000 Covenanters fought around 5,000 government troops. However, despite the Covenanters having a larger army, they were poorly equipped and badly organised. The government easily defeated them. Thousands of Covenanters fled to the hills. It's estimated that only a few hundred of them were actually killed. And then the remaining 1,200 were taken prisoner. And where were these prisoners held, Jenny? Where could it be? Could you guess? Oh, Annie, I, I don't know. There's nowhere possible in particular that it could possibly be. You really should be reading the episode title, Jenny, because they were put <laughs> in none other than Greyfriars Kirkyard. 
No! <laughs> so the very spot where the National Covenant was signed more than 40 years prior is now the very space where over a thousand defeated Covenanters are held against their will. This seems like more than coincidence, Annie. I find these kind of places intriguing. You know, they always want to be at the centre of the drama. It's like your great aunt who doesn't really care that it's your birthday, but she comes to the party just to stir the pot. To let slip some family secrets and just enjoy the drama. And for some reason, she's wearing her wedding dress. (laughs) (laughs) That's who I want to be in 40 years. (laughs) But you never got married, Annie. It doesn't matter. That's why I'm wearing my dress. It's a different dress every party. (laughs) (laughs) But in the case of our kirkyard, it tends to turn up when people need a particularly grim place for a grim thing to happen. Ooh, as terrible as it sounds, Annie, that's what I'm here for. Let's go. Greyfriars Kirkyard becomes the Covenanters' prison. The total area that the Covenanters were held in was only about three acres. It's a really small space for 1,200 people. It was surrounded by high walls and had only one gate which was constantly guarded. The prisoners were given no shelter. They were left out in the elements day after day, night after night for months on end. They were given but a penny loaf of bread a day, which is really just a little bread roll. It's not enough calories to maintain a human body of any size, really. Many prisoners died from starvation, disease and exposure. Many others were executed for treason. The only way to escape the prison was to renounce their faith and beliefs and take an oath that they would never rise in arms again. The majority of the prisoners took this option and were released. However, after about four months there remained a core group of about 300 starved men who refused to submit and renounce their strongly held Presbyterian faith. That's four months from the end of July. That's really four months in an outdoor prison in autumn in Edinburgh, which is pretty dire conditions. Edinburgh has a brutally cold wind this time of year. As the winter began closing in, the government finally arranged for the remaining men to be shipped to the American colonies as indentured servants. And so, in November, the remaining 257 men were taken to Leith Harbour and boarded the ship, the Crown of London, bound for the plantations in America. But the Crown of London would never reach its destination. Because... On the night of 10th December 1679, it was sheltering from a violent storm off the coast of Orkney. The anchor chain of the Crown of London snapped, and she was driven onto the rocks. Between 40 and 50 prisoners would survive this night. What's really tragic about the situation is so few prisoners survived, though the ship's crew, they all lived. And they could have made the choice to open the prisoners' hatches and prevent their loss of life. 
that would have at least given the prisoners a chance to save themselves. But instead, the crew chose to abandon them to certain drowning. What an awful, awful situation all round. The site for their merciless imprisonment and the home to untold suffering, starvation, death and execution of these Covenanters was Greyfriars Kirkyard. And even those who survived the four months and didn't renounce their faith, who were sent from their beloved homeland into indentured servitude, were struck with the worst luck possible on their only way out of Greyfriars. But the story doesn't end there. In fact, this is just the beginning of Greyfriars Kirkyard becoming one of the most haunted spots in all of Scotland. You see, the particularly brutal treatment of these prisoners was overseen by the Lord Advocate of Edinburgh, a manny named George Mackenzie. Or, as he was affectionately known, Bloody Mackenzie. So Mackenzie got his nickname not from a beloved family member, but rather to acknowledge his legacy of brutality. George Mackenzie oversaw the tough policy pursued against the Covenanters during the killing time, including the mass imprisonment in Greyfriars Kirkyard. Bloody Mackenzie's policies as Lord Advocate resulted in the deaths of thousands of Covenanters, and many saw the blood being upon his hands. So let's open up Bloody Mackenzie's big bloody biography to learn how he went from humble lawyer to blood-soaked scandal. George Mackenzie is born in Dundee in either 1636 or 1638. In his youth, he studies law in Scotland and France, and eventually he becomes a lawyer. To commemorate this, Mackenzie acquires a wonderful wig with gorgeous, dark, chocolatey curls. However, the beauty of his new, glorious locks could not disguise the rot within his heart. Upon graduation, he was in fact known as Bloody Lovely Locks Mackenzie. <laughs> no, no he wasn't, Jenny. <laughs> However, he did write a particularly dreadful novel and a good few books on law, which we'll come back to later. But his main occupation was as a lawyer, and for any lawyer in the 17th century, this is a fascinating time for the, the trials of the legal system itself, really. For example, we know Mackenzie worked in both the defence and prosecution of people accused of witchcraft. As a prosecutor, George Mackenzie's work resulted in the guilty verdict for five women accused of witchcraft. Tragically, this guilty verdict condemned these women to execution by strangulation and burning. He is also involved in other witchcraft trials, but these five are just what we have records on. Historians sometimes portray him as being sympathetic to women accused of witchcraft because Mackenzie publishes a selection of his cases. Now, in one of these cases, he's defending a woman named Mavia in her witchcraft trial. It's a really interesting defence to read because he's arguing within the framework that witches exist 
which he has to do at that point because it's established by law that there are witches. But he's trying to logic away some of the particularly witch-associated crimes that she's been accused of. Mackenzie wrote, I am not of the opinion to deny that there are witches, though I think witches not numerous. All conclusions in criminal cases should be very clearly deduced, since the crime is so improbable and the conclusions so severe. So he thinks there's witches, but not that many witches around. Mackenzie then goes on to defend his client on the basis that part of her accusation is that she was able to turn into a dove. I might debate that the devil cannot carry witches bodily, because it is not probable that God would allow him the permission to constantly work this miracle. God would not allow the devil to carry persons to a public place where they celebrate and blasphemizing his name and scorning his church. Nor is it proper either for heavy bodies to fly in the air, nor can devils carry heavy bodies in the air as devils are spirits and have no arms. But I may confidently assert that the devil cannot transform a woman into the shape of a dove. That being impossible. For how can the soul of a woman fit into the body of a dove? Hmm? These have diverse organs which they just don't fit. To believe in such transformations is heresy by the canon law and is deserving of excommunication. I think this shows us a lot about Mackenzie's personality. And the anatomy of doves. <laughs> I mean, have you ever tried to squeeze a whole woman into a dove, Jenny? <laughs> just the once, just the once. And to be fair, it was devilishly difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so Mackenzie forms these clever, strong arguments grounded in logic. Yet, he goes along with the authorities and enables them to execute women for a crime that you can see he himself is very uncertain of. The strength of his argument actually makes me think he's, he's a very weak man for his role prosecuting women for witchcraft. We can begin to see a chasm of difference between his own morals and his actions when he steps onto the other side of the bar to prosecute women for witchcraft. Honestly, I would have far more respect for Mackenzie if he actually had a zealous belief that the women he prosecuted for witchcraft were actually witches. When we were doing research, I kept coming across things that suggested that he had empathy for the women accused of witchcraft and was somehow immune to witch hunt fever because he writes that he doesn't logically think that a woman can become a dove. However, he then went on to prosecute plenty of non-dove-related cases. We have five women, Agnes, Bessie, Isabel, Margaret, and another Margaret, who were executed partially because of Mackenzie's role in the prosecution. And this pile of innocent women's bodies isn't even why he earns the nickname Bloody Mackenzie. It's just a strange footnote in his history. 
I think it's really bad when there's more than one pile of bodies for folks to choose from when they are giving you your nickname. <laughs> yeah, I, it should technically it should be double bloody Mackenzie. <laughs> <laughs> Blood and bones Mackenzie, maybe. Ooh, I like that. But as we mentioned, he earned the bloody title in his work as Lord Advocate. He was granted this position by King Charles II in 1677. The Lord Advocate in Scotland is a pretty sweet job if you can get it, as it's the chief legal officer for the Crown. And in this very high role, Mackenzie enthusiastically, ruthlessly and brutally prosecutes the Covenanters. We've already covered what happens when he has to deal with a great number of Covenanter prisoners being caught after the Battle of Bothwell Bridge. So this is the other side of that story. Mackenzie is the man who chose to imprison the Covenanters at Greyfriars. Under Mackenzie's policies, Edinburgh witnesses public executions of Covenanters and the terrifying curation of some of the Covenanters' severed heads. It's not very Marie Kondo, is it, to say, what shall we decorate the city with? Some flowers? Mm, no, I'd rather pop up the rotten head as a decoration. I think that's what's going to bring the tourists in. This rotten head doesn't give me joy. This one does. Put them both on spikes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's grim. That's really grim. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> give me a heads up next time you're going to make such an awful joke, Jenny. <laughs> Look, Annie, he was just trying to get ahead in life. <laughs> However, George Mackenzie clearly believed that he did a splendid job because he boasted, No king's advocate has ever screwed the prerogative higher than I have. I deserve to have my statue placed riding behind King Charles II in Parliament Close. George Mackenzie does actually have quite a big legacy because he ends up founding the Advocates Library, which goes on to become the National Library of Scotland, which is much cooler than a statue riding behind Charles II in the Parliament clothes. However, life, or rather death, played a very cruel joke on poor old George Mackenzie. When he died at Westminster in 1691, his body was brought back to Edinburgh. And there he was entombed in, drumroll please, Greyfriars Kirkyard. Way! <laughs> That's right, he ended up buried in the same ground as his Covenanter victims. Only, he wasn't buried in just a regular grave. He was entombed in a mausoleum. This mausoleum is a circular stone building with sort of inbuilt stone columns all the way round. It has big heavy wooden doors with little windows in them and a domed roof. But the story of George Mackenzie doesn't end with his entombment in this mausoleum in Greyfriars Kirkyard. For even death couldn't keep Bloody Mackenzie from wreaking havoc upon the people of Edinburgh. Because over the following centuries, his brutal life was memorialised in myth. 200 years after Mackenzie's death, 
Robert Louis Stevenson wrote in his 1889 book, Edinburgh, Picturesque Notes, that... Behind the church is the haunted mausoleum of Sir George Mackenzie. When a man's soul is certainly in hell, his body will scarce lie quiet in a tomb. Sometime or other, the door must open, and the reprobate come forth in the abhorred garments of the grave. Spooky. <laughs> he goes on to say that foolhardy youths would play in the graveyard and press their wee faces against the doors of the mausoleum, urging the ghost of Bloody Mackenzie to come out. The kids would chant, Bloody Mackenzie, come out if you dare, draw the snake and lift the bar. If anyone didn't recognise some of those Scots words, um, Bloody Mackenzie, come out if you dare, open the lock and lift the bar. I know this sounds ridiculous, but... That, that actually gives me chills because because it's exactly how I got haunted. <laughs> Is it finally Jenny gets haunted story time? Uh, uh, no, let me give you some context first because I have made the mistake of telling this story without context before and um, just had the absolute Mickey ripped out of me for it. So <laughs> to avoid further scepticism to my very real haunting, let me lay some groundwork. No amount of groundwork is going to hold back my scepticism. I know. All right, I Jenny. Know. I'm going to try so hard here. Okay. <laughs> let's let's roll on with this tale. All right. So we know that Mackenzie's mausoleum has been considered haunted for hundreds of years, but there's a story from the late '90s that seems to explain just why the decades since then have been far more paranormally active. Before this event, the reports of spooky activity were of hearing blood-curdling screams coming from deep within the mausoleum, or hearing the sounds of a coffin being hurled around the inside of the building, as if something were trying to escape it. But one stormy Edinburgh night in 1998 would change the nature of these fairly harmless spooky reports forever. The streets were dark and torrential rain was streaming down the cobbled alleyways. A homeless man was in desperate need for a place to shelter for the night and upon passing a warm and lively pub from which the latest Spice Girls hit was eerily emanating into the soaking darkness of the street, he saw Greyfriars Kirkyard across the road. The tops of the various mausoleums were visible over the high stone walls, and an idea came to our anguished fellow. He crept through the wrought iron gates and hurried between the headstones to one of the mausoleums. Alas, the heavy iron door was impenetrable, and so he moved on to the next house of the dead. Again, the metal bars wouldn't so much wiggle as he desperately tugged on them. And so, he moved deeper into the graveyard and towards a mausoleum shrouded in shadow. When the man tried the heavy wooden doors, they did not open. But the weather was relentless. And so, he summoned all of his force and he hurled himself at them. And with a crunching lurch, the doors opened. And our man entered the mausoleum 
of Bloody Mackenzie. After shaking the weather from himself, he was immediately struck by how quiet and small the circular building was. He pulled the lighter from his sodden pocket and after a few tries, it sparked. The tiny flame lit the room and the man saw that he was standing atop an iron grate on the floor. He bent down and lowered the flame, peering into the darkness below him. But with a sudden squeaking clang, the grate collapsed from under him and he fell down into the deep darkness, landing with a splintering crash. In a horrified scramble, he realised that he was not alone, for he had burst through the lid of a coffin and was lying with the mummified bones of bloody George Mackenzie. A security guard heard a commotion coming from the cemetery and he went to investigate. Squinting through the sideways rain, he scanned the gloomy graveyard and from the darkness came barreling a howling and wailing sheet-white face, screaming of horrors unknown. The terrified homeless man ran from Greyfriars Kirkyard, but what he left behind has been causing chaos ever since. There's many different versions of this story, all from around about the same time, that, that kind of 1998 Spice Girls peak era. <laughs> However, we've not been able to find a police report or any newspaper articles about the incident from the time. So it's important to highlight this because some bad things that are real have actually happened in the mausoleum. There is damage to the mausoleum and enthusiastic tour guides like to point to the hole and tell you that that's where the homeless man fell through. However, I think this is just a convenient mausoleum hole that fits this story. And so, on the balance of evidence, which is that there's no evidence that this story exists, though it's massively popular, I think it's highly likely that this is just an urban legend and not an actual event that happened. Alright, well, yes, that is technically correct, Annie, but... If Buddy Mackenzie wasn't released from the confines of his coffin in 1998, there is no denying the terrifyingly true tale of two teenagers in 2003. Ah yes, so this one is actually well reported. Two young lads had heard of their alleged hauntings at Mackenzie's mausoleum, and so they decided to break in and see what truth there was behind it. They were caught by a tour guide, and the Guardian reported, Two teenagers who forced their way into the burial chamber of one of Scotland's most brutal historical figures and cut the head from a corpse were at court in Edinburgh yesterday. The teenagers took the skull from the mausoleum of Sir George Bloody Mackenzie and played with it in the grounds of Greyfriars Kirkyard. The youth were charged under the ancient legislation used to prosecute Edinburgh's notorious 18th and 19th century grave robbers. It was the first time for over a hundred years that anyone had been accused of violation of sepulchre. Violation of sepulchre is an old crime in Scots law. The word sepulchre means burial tomb or chamber. 
So this law is about violating a grave or a tomb. It's a charge that has been used over the centuries to prosecute those caught grave robbing or emptying graves so that they may be resold. A common use of it would be to prosecute grave robbers who had snuck into graveyards and dug up freshly buried bodies to sell for medical research, which was really popular in Edinburgh, or to steal any valuables that the bodies had been buried with. This was much more common a few hundred years ago, but the law is still part of modern-day Scots law. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think anyone should legally be allowed to dig up a grave without permission from both the family and the authorities. (laughs) Yeah, I'll agree with that one for sure. (laughs) The court heard how the youths caused around £10,000 worth of damage during the incident. The doors of the Mackenzie Mausoleum were forced and the mummified head of a male corpse cut off with a penknife. One boy then put his fist into the neck and talked to the head like a glove puppet. He was later caught after returning to the graveyard to show off to a girl who did not believe his claim that he had broken into a tomb. The judge, Lord Wheatley, said they had committed a gruesome and revolting offence. The 17-year-old was sentenced to three years probation and the 15-year-old, two years probation. Who thinks that you'll impress a girl by getting a mummified <laughs> Honestly, I like his technique. I might try that. <laughs> no, Jenny, that's how you traumatise a girl. <laughs> Shall we get drinks, coffee, or should we go for a dinner date? Well, actually, have you seen the severed head? <laughs> I mean, if I were in my final resting place of a mausoleum, enjoying a peaceful eternity of nothingness, and then the next thing you know, my head's a sock puppet, <laughs> I'd be pretty annoyed. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, you wouldn't be alone, Annie. As these disturbances seem to have angered old bloody Mackenzie for what was previously a light bit of haunting, took a much more violent turn. From then on, people reported being blown back from the door of the mausoleum with such a force that they were knocked out when they landed. One woman described walking by the mausoleum and feeling someone's hands tighten around her neck from behind. Terrified and thinking she was being attacked, she whirled around only to find that there was no one there. Heavy hand-shaped bruises soon developed all around her neck. But that's not all. Over 450 violent attacks have been reported happening around the mausoleum. These include scratches, bruises and burn marks suddenly appearing or being pushed or grabbed by some unseen force. And it's not just physical injuries. Many feel lightheaded and faint. Intense waves of nausea overcome countless others. Some start shaking uncontrollably or become numb in their faces. Restricted breathing or hyperventilation is common and people can have panic attacks or be violently sick behind a headstone. This is about everything that you really don't want to happen to you in a public place. This is true, but it doesn't always happen straight away in the graveyard. 
Many report bizarre scratches and cuts appearing once they've left the graveyard, as if some malicious entity has stalked them out of the cemetery walls, hell-bent on doing them harm. Well, I do pick up countless bruises and cuts in day-to-day life. I'm just a very clumsy person. I have no spatial awareness. If I'm walking (laughs) past a bush, I'm never going to not be scratched by it so Mm. i do find this a bit hard to believe (laughs) well how about a first-hand account of a bloody mackenzie haunting to change your mind annie (sighs) okay i'm willing to do this but before we go into the story (laughs) jenny can you testify that you actually believe that this was a haunting i can i want ghosts to exist but i am skeptical about ghosts but this was such a bizarre incident that yeah it i don't know and there's just let me let me tell the story okay, okay okay on you go on you go let's roll let's roll all right picture this it's 2017 i'm with my boyfriend at the time um i'm still in my decade of straight haze so i'm definitely wearing skinny jeans and an infinity scarf um he's american and over visiting so we decide to have a touristy day in edinburgh There's already so much to unpack here, Jenny. Uh, No time for unpacking, Annie, only haunting. (laughs) So (laughs) we drive through from Glasgow and we do a tour of the castle. We go on a tour of a distillery and we wrap up the day with a nice walking tour of haunted Edinburgh. And this perfect day of tours for a couple of tourists ends in none other than Greyfriars Kirkyard. We were in a group of about 15 people and I don't remember anything specific about what the tour guide was telling us, but the mausoleum of Bloody Mackenzie must have been a part of their talk. There's no way that wasn't included. No one in our group fainted or felt a hand drawn up the back of their necks. And when the tour ended, we were sort of left to wander around the cemetery and go on with the rest of our evenings. Now, obviously, my boyfriend and I go up to Bloody Mackenzie's mausoleum and we start trying to peer through the little windows and the doors and see some spooky stuff inside. And I distinctly, really, really clearly remember saying, like, ooh, come and haunt me. Ooh, come on, big fella, come and get me. Ooh. And, uh, and as we stood there, nothing happened. So... We carried on and headed home. I drove back to Glasgow. Um, I hadn't been drinking. We'd had a nice pub dinner earlier, but yeah, totally sober. We were feeling tired, but happy. Feeling good, feeling ready for some sleep. And we got home and went to bed. Next thing I know, I'm suddenly wide awake. It's dark and quiet. We've clearly been asleep for a few hours. And now, for no apparent reason... I am wide awake. I feel totally fine. I'm alert. It's as if it's midday. And I'm confused as to why I'm so wide awake. Usually I'm a really heavy sleeper. So I check my phone and I see that it's 3am on the dot. And as soon as I see that, like, I clock it's 3am, I go, oh, that's a bit weird. Like, that's, that's spooky, ha ha ha. This intense wave of nausea hits me like a truck and I realise I'm about to throw up. Like, I didn't wake up because I felt sick. I woke up and then I felt sick. So I had to sprint to the bathroom and vomit. 
afterwards, while I'm doing my teeth, I feel totally fine. There's no nausea left. There's no reason that I would have been sick. And so, yeah, there's no lingering ickiness. And I just went back to bed and fell fast asleep. This story is not convincing me of anything, but it's slightly <laughs> putting me off my lunch. <laughs> no, no, I, I know that it sounds like I just threw up and it's no big deal, but this is a really weird brag. I do not throw up. The last time I threw up, which was non-alcohol related, I will say, was when I was 10 years old. And my family even calls me Iron Stomach Jennifer. Like, throwing up randomly in the middle of the night has never happened to me before, and it's never happened since. And I just knew there was something bizarrely odd about the suddenness of its onset and its leaving. I don't know, to not throw up for 15 years and then randomly vomit right after taunting the ghost of Bloody Mackenzie... It's too much of a coincidence to me. And like I say, I just, on some weird deep level, I know that I have been haunted by bloody George Mackenzie. Anyway, I told this to my sister and I was dead serious about it. And she genuinely almost died with laughter and has never let me live it down. So I didn't tell anyone else. And then actually earlier this year, my mum sent me through a podcast about all these other reports of really similar things happening. People leaving and throwing up, people being randomly sick, nausea, all these things happening the night after they visit bloody George Mackenzie's tomb. And I was vindicated. Annie, they don't call me Iron Stomach Jennifer for nothing. I was haunted. The spookiest thing about this whole story is how your family calls you Jennifer and not Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) No, the spookiest thing is that I was haunted by old bloody Mackenzie. (laughs) All right, well... I'm going to suggest the hypothesis that perhaps you just ate something dodgy, old Mm. iron stomach Jennifer. (laughs) What did you have for dinner that night? Uh, I'm not sure. We had a pub dinner, I remember that, so probably my usual of scampi, chicken nuggets of the sea. (sighs) Okay, well, there you go, Jenny. You probably had a bad chicken nugget of the sea, not a haunting. I know what happened to me, Annie. (laughs) And even if there was some explanation other than my stomach being haunted, countless others have reported and experienced weird ailments, injuries and happenings all associated with Greyfriars Kirkyard. From hearing knocking or laughter coming from deep within Bloody Mackenzie's mausoleum to strange scents such as smelling salts or sulfur wafting around and some even report little children running over and playing with invisible entities outside the mausoleum doors so yeah you can say what you like and be as skeptical as you like but something weird is going on there and with a history as dark as greyfriars there's no denying that if somewhere were going to be haunted it would be here I'll just add in that there's apparently a couple of haunted mausoleums in Greyfriars Kirkyard. One is the Black Mausoleum and the other is Mackenzie's Mausoleum. And both have significant reports of alleged supernatural activities. George Mackenzie's novel, um, (laughs) he's basically copying a lot of other works at the time. But it does have a weird little bit that I'm going to read for you that may resonate with your story. His novel uses a lot of metaphors um, about throwing up. 
George Mackenzie is really interested in the medical idea of humours, a theory from ancient Greece that the body has a balance of four humours, the four vital fluids, blood, phlegm, black bile and yellow bile. And so a lot of his book is using these as romantically as he can. Um, it's, it's a cringe book to read. <laughs> <laughs> but he writes, Is it not enough that you should send us a barren and heavy age of iron, but that you must likewise edge it with steel, that it may the better cut to pieces our grieved souls? Was not the treasure of man's great misery enough before? O earth, why swallow ye not such miscreants? Is it because you fear to contaminate your pure bowels with such contagious carcasses? If so, vomit up your flames of fire to cleanse your surface of that pest. Um... This man is in dire need of an editor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it does it does sound like something a person who knew that he was going to be a ghost in the future would write, you know? He's all about making people vomit unnecessarily at 3am. It's right there between the lines. He says it. Contaminate your pure bowels with such contagious carcasses. It's just... It's chicken nuggets of the sea. <laughs> You leave Scampi out of this. <laughs> I'm really sceptical about ghosts. I spent a lot of my teenage years misbehaving in dark, supposedly haunted places. And the most supernatural feelings I've had myself could easily be explained by a cloud passing over the moon or an unfortunate gust of wind. But I do think there are places that make you feel connected to the history that has happened there. And when that history contains so much human suffering, it's hard not to feel moved by it. In modern Scotland, graveyards are kind of tucked away and a little out of sight. When you suddenly step onto hallowed ground... Surrounded by stones carved with the names of souls of the bodies buried beneath your feet. It makes sense that it pushes your mind into thinking about spirits, ghosts and the afterlife. Graveyards are powerful places, but not places to be scared of. But rather sites that can inspire the subconscious to see the world differently. Some very wise words, Annie. Enter the Greyfriars Kirkyard at your own risk. And most importantly, don't taunt a notoriously evil ghost. Let us know what you think. Is Greyfriars Kirkyard haunted? Yes. Or is it just a place that encourages your subconscious to think that your scampi was a ghost? <laughs> Let us know. Okay, well... I feel like Scampi's got the bad end of this deal. I love Scampi. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or have been a fan for a while now, why not head over to our Patreon by signing up for the price of Pub Scampi once a month? 
you can help support your two favourite independent podcasters as we make this spooktacular podcast. When you head over to patreon.com slash stories of Scotland, you'll get access to lots of wonderful fairy tales and snippets of Scottish history and nature. You can also support us by following us on all social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, even LinkedIn. And if you head over there now, you'll see the terrifyingly creepy neeps that have been unveiled for 2022. And I gotta say, they are just getting more and more disturbing as time goes on. It's fascinatingly frightening watching them evolve. You can also give us a five-star rating and take 30 little seconds to write a wonderful review for us. It really helps us with the all-seeing algorithm and allows others to find us more easily. And so, a massive thank you to all of our new Patreons, Gina, Jennifer, Martha, Livy, and Gianna. We have just reached 200 patrons, which is honestly phenomenal. Thank you guys so, so much. And we're going to be getting some celebratory content up there soon. So if you'd like to hear that as well, get on over there. Sign up. Help support us, please. Please, please help support us. (laughs) So since Halloween is just around the corner, I would like to think of everyone in the turnip patch as delightful little turnip elves. And we're all choosing our favourite neep to carve into a lantern that we're going to use to scare away any troublesome poltergeists. However, my little elf friends, we're going to misbehave with our turnips and use them to scare folks who dare to be outside late on Halloween. And when people are scared and run away from us with our hovering turnip lanterns, they're going to end up in our turnip patch where we'll be having a neepy Kaylee. <laughs> Our turnip patch party is pretty spectacular. We are drinking turnip spice lattes and eating sweet turnip pie with our turnip sorbet and neep ice cream. Or ice scream since it's Halloween. We're going to have a big fire and we'll be dancing around it and we'll be toasting our little elf hill with our goblets of turnip wine, turnip aid, turnip juice and turnip liqueur that's strong enough to bring a turnip to life. I don't doubt that. (laughs) Now one of us accidentally spills a little of our turnip liqueur onto a turnip itself and suddenly this turnip sprouts little legs and arms and it whisks us up into turnipy waltzes and it starts spreading like gremlins Mm -hmm. putting neep liqueur on all the other turnips in our turnip and we're all choosing our favorite neep all right okay and we have a great time um it's a mash it is a turnip (laughs) mash a turnip mash (laughs) it was a graveyard dance until next time everyone slanjava slanjava encountered many enraged women with fists and staves and peats, but no stones, and that they beat him sore. I... (laughs) I hate that I love this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yeah, smack that man with a peat. But not (laughs) stones. Yeah, a freshly dried lump of peat. I mean, honestly, it's kind of (laughs) springy. 
I think we need to say something more politically correct right then, though I love our natural response. <laughs> no, no, drama. Give me some drama. But the story doesn't end there. <laughs> <laughs> need to learn the difference between drama and a lie in their journey. <laughs> Mackenzie then goes on to defend his client on the basis that part of her accusation is that she was able to turn into a dove. <laughs> so the first part of his argument seems to be as though he's imagining how they'd put on in a theatre or something similar, a woman turning into a dove and saying, oh, we could just, you know, carry her as though she's floating, but a devil couldn't carry her. We're going to need a bigger dove costume. (laughs) (laughs) One boy then put his fist into the neck and talked to the head like a glove puppet. In some ways, like the devil would with a dove puppet. (laughs) I think that joke's 